Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. I'm Sally Krawcheck, CEO and co-founder of Elevest, which is a digital investment platform for women and a Wall Street refugee. When I go out to raise money, even though you're sort of like, hey, I ran Smith Barney, I ran Merrill, I was CFO of a big bank, fund me, you do still, more than you think, get, but women are a niche market. Dude, they're half the population. They control $5 trillion of investable assets. We're going to inherit 70% of the $40 trillion in wealth transfer. Like, this is not a niche market, but that view is still there. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Wall Street legend Sally Krawcheck is the CEO and co-founder of Elevest, a digital investment platform for women. She's the chair of Elevate Network, a global professional woman's networking group, and she's also the best-selling author of Own It, The Power of Women at Work. She previously was the CEO of Merrill Lynch Wealth Management and the president of the Global Wealth and Investment Management Division of Bank of America. Today, her new focus is on closing the gender money gap. So Sally, what inspired you to get into finance to begin with? Well, I wanted to be one of two things when I grew up. Uh, the first was a princess and the second was a banker. And the princess didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So that's actually not the real story. The real story is that I was a journalism major at the University of North Carolina and was on track to write for a newspaper or a magazine. And in my senior year, decided that I should probably learn something. And so thought, maybe I'll be a business reporter. Let me go to Wall Street, learn something for a couple of years, and the, then become a business journalist. And that really was the plan through most of my 20s. And I ended up investment banking for several years, hated it, hated everything about it, wanted to get back into media, really couldn't find a job doing it. And how happened upon the idea of becoming an equity research analyst, which in a way is a lot like a business journalist, right? A lot of writing, a lot of digging, a lot of engaging with smart people, but also the 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 analysis and the model building that I loved as well. So, you know, I got about two degrees away from being a business journalist by working on Wall Street. So much of your career you spent, you were the only woman in the room. <laughs> and so I'm wondering, how were you able to make your voice heard? Yeah. How long do we have? You know, people say to me, did being a woman on Wall Street help you or hurt you? And my answer is yes, because I can point to times in my career when it was each of those or both of those. The way I heard, I, I got myself heard was I started by being deeply entrenched in the numbers and deeply entrenched in the research and that I found that if I came in with the multiple regression that laid out and quantified the business line profitability of the companies I covered for my clients, they were going to listen. They were going to listen. They had to listen in order for them to be knowledgeable about the industry that they were investing in and the stocks that they were buying. And once they had to listen, the very fact of my being a female meant I was unforgettable because, oh, yeah, there was that really interesting analysis that man with the brown hair and the red tie and the white shirt did what was his name? I don't know. <laughs> right. 
But if, oh, there was that interesting analysis that one woman who covers the industry did, oh, right, it's Sally. And so people couldn't forget you, you know, because of your being a woman. So, and I found over time that once I had sort of earned that right through having the numbers and the quantification, that I then earned the right to have my opinion as well, even if it wasn't backed by the numbers. So what's the takeaway for other women? Become an, an expert at what you're doing? Yeah, well, you know, unfortunately, it's it's advice that's been there since time immemorial, which is be great at your job. And that for all that we're having this fascinating national conversation today about gender in the workplace and harassment in the workplace and gender expectations in the workplace, which is a, is a depressing but healthy conversation, I have found that there is regardless, a pretty high correlation between hard work and success. And that it's not every week and it's not every year even, but that if you put in the work and are excellent at what you do, it becomes very difficult for people to ignore you. Not in every circumstance, but certainly on Wall Street, which was a meritocracy. Do you ever deal with any harassment? Uh, Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Uh, When I first started in investment banking at Solomon Brothers, which was a pretty rough and tumble place, every morning I would come in and be greeted by a Xerox copy of male genitalia on my desk. And I was a baby. People say to me, why don't you go to HR? I mean, what the heck was an HR? I didn't know what an HR was. Um, I knew that my boss's 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 boss was screaming obscenity, smoking cigars, having literally, literally was having an affair with three different women in the department that everybody knew about. So the idea that I could go to somebody and say, geez, there are these pictures of male genitalia on my desk just wasn't an option. This was 1987. I came from a middle class family. My friends were losing their jobs, losing their jobs because of the crash. And so my only option was to come in every day crumple that paper and throw it away. And then, you know, later in my career, I had powerful men make inappropriate passes at me, as so many women have. Happily, I was never in a situation in which it was my boss or my boss's boss or anyone who had control over my career. And so happily, while it was embarrassing and awkward and weird and like, seriously, dude, are you world famous financier and government official who you're listeners would know. So it was awkward and embarrassing, but happily, I wasn't in a situation where I was scared of losing my job. Thank goodness. So there's plenty of corporate initiatives to help women's careers in the financial industry, but it doesn't seem like they're working very well. Because they're not. <laughs> so what What do we do to change this? What, what's going wrong here? Oh, you know, I the CEO's I really believe get it. I'm sure there's some CEO someplace who's saying diversity is important and they're like, it's not important. I don't care about it. I think they get it. The challenge is, particularly in financial services, particularly on Wall Street, the challenge is, you're not going to believe I'm about to say it, these firms view themselves as meritocracies. Oh, well, hold on, Sally. If they're a meritocracy, then the best people are going to rise to the top. That's how meritocracies work. That's not the case. In fact, the research tells us that those industries that view themselves as meritocracies are the least diverse, right? Wall Street's one of them. Silicon Valley is another. Now, you might say, oh, well, you know, unfortunately, women and people of color just can't cut it. White men, you know, just have better business results. Go back to Silicon Valley. First Round Capital has research that tells us that the investments that they make in teams that have women in the leadership team have 63% better returns than those that are men only. Despite this, Despite this, last year, women got 2.5%, 3% of, of venture capital dollars. So this is a meritocracy. We're going to put our 
money where it's going to work best, and yet the returns are po- meh, okay in Silicon Valley. The stock market returns on Wall Street have been, you know, through a cycle really poor, and they are misallocating their resources. I think what's happening too, as you look at companies, is that middle management is where diversity is going to die because it's a meritocracy. Let me run the business the way I'm going to, and you judge me on the results. And so I'm picky. I, I'm not hiring very often as a middle manager, and so therefore I pick people who look a lot like me, right? And I'm not promoting people of difference. I may be vaguely aware of the research that says diversity leads to better business results, but it's just so much more comfortable to pick people like me. And then when they get judged, well, who can say that theoretically their results would have been better if they'd had a diverse leadership, a diverse team? Nobody. And so this, you know, view of meritocracy is leading people to go into their comfort zones and therefore have non-diverse industries. And so I haven't checked the latest numbers, but I can tell you a couple of years ago, Wall Street was less diverse than it had been a decade before. You would have thought coming out of the financial crisis, it would have become more diverse. It was less diverse. Wow. So how do we change that? What do we do differently? I think we have to give direction, and I'm trying to avoid the word quota here, but to give goals and to pay people around those goals and say, you know, your team needs to look like X or Y. It can't be a bunch of folks who look just like you. And you need to deliver this kind of revenue and you need to have, you know, this many new projects or whatever those things are and make it something that we compensate people for. Because just talking about it at the town hall is a nice to do and then ignoring it in the year end reviews, we have seen how far that can take us and we've stalled out. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. For a new podcast experience, subscribe to the Future of Everything podcast from The Wall Street Journal. Now on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women. From the Wall Street Journal. You've had some pretty public career setbacks. I, yes, I noticed that. But you've been able to <laughs> bounce back and you've had this resiliency. So I'm wondering where you get that strength from. Well, it really comes through a recognition of how very fortunate I am and we all are. And that I, I love to joke that, you know, I, I believe I hold a world record that I'm the only woman to be fired on the front page of your newspaper twice. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. And of course, I I love to joke, you know, one way to look at this is, oh, gosh, I hope nobody read the Wall Street Journal today. Please tell me that there was a terrible outage and the Wall Street Journal was not published today. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is I can't believe how fortunate I am that I'm on the front page of the friggin' Wall Street Journal. Like, who would have thought when I was a 10-year-old girl in Charleston, South Carolina, that I'd do anything that got me anywhere close to the Wall Street Journal? I mean, it's really pretty friggin' amazing. And once you have that attitude that, yes, success is the result of hard work and 
darn it, I believe I deserve the success. But at a base level, the great good fortune that I and we and the listeners have had to be born in this country, to be brought up by parents who valued my education, who went into debt in order to finance my education, who encouraged me that I had the opportunities I've had, as opposed to being born in some terrible slum in a third world country where those opportunities weren't available to me. Once you have that as a grounding and you're, you know, fired from Citigroup because you fought to return client money in the downturn and your boss didn't agree with it and he fired you, okay, big deal. We're, we're, you're playing with house money at that point. And happily, my children are still going to have dinner on the table. And happily, you live in a country in which you have an opportunity to come back. And I always thought when I had my public ups and downs, as long as my business results are good, which they were in in those circumstances, as long as I was willing to take risk, given this country this time, I could come back. Do you think women need a thicker skin? Than they have today or that the men have or thicker than what? Thicker than they have today. No, I think we've been relatively moderate in our reaction to things that are going on. I mean, and yet we're called emotional. You see some of these essays that are coming out about Harvey Weinstein and the press is saying in an emotional essay, so-and-so. I'm like, I don't know. It looks like a reading of the facts to me. asked for a massage and I said no and somehow we're being called emotional. I think we're being honest. I think we're being truthful. I think this is really healthy. I think it is in some ways a direct reaction to the election of Donald Trump that these professional women saw the election of this individual who um, has publicly stated how he feels about and gropes at women. And I think there are groups of women who are who are saying, I'm sick of this, you know what, and I'm not taking it anymore. And I think it's really healthy for us to be having this discussion in this debate. You're very much a brand name within the financial industry. A lot of our millennial listeners are very focused on building their own personal mm-hmm. brand. What branding advice do you have for them? Well, it's an interesting question. It's an interesting thought. First of all, I'd say everybody has a personal brand, whether we we admit it or not. And, and many folks in my generation, oh, no, a personal brand. I No, I couldn't possibly. I'm just going to do my work and let it speak for itself. And uh, that's a mistake because we all have a personal brand and it's what people say about us when we leave the room. And so the advice I give to folks is think hard about what you want people to say about you. And when you describe yourself, when you are writing on LinkedIn or posting on Facebook or engaging with your boss, talking about what you've accomplished for the year, to really think about what words you want people to associate with you. Is it that you are the person who does the sticky turnarounds? Or is it that you are the individual who always gets the great audit results? Is it that you are the creative who can make the design? I mean, whatever those things are. And be sure to put that forward about yourself and back that up with results and facts. You are chair of the Elevate Network. It's a woman's networking group. And so I'm wondering, what's the biggest networking mistake you see women make? They don't do it. I, Speaking of millennials, I can't believe how many young women have said to me, networking, that's a little sleazy. And I don't play golf. And I want to do it the right way. Okay. But somehow they seem to tell the guys maybe in college or high school that their network is important and that they should cultivate the network. And the research tells us that one of the reasons the guys get promoted ahead of us in their 30s is because they have stronger networks. Put another way, networking has been identified as the number one unwritten rule of success in business. And your 
next business opportunity is much more likely to come from a loose connection than from a friend because you and your friend know the same thing. And so just do it. And the reason that I invested in Elevate Network is because women can professional women can be so very busy. And so to provide them for a platform where, oh, this is easy, right? I'm, you know, it's a Thursday night, Elevate's holding an event. I can go hear from HR professionals about such and such. And I know a group of like-minded professional women, diverse professional women will be there. And I, I can sort of knock these two things off at once as opposed to, oh, you know what? I have to try to set up drinks and, oh, too much trouble. I can't do it. And we really see magical things happen at Elevate Network when these women come together. You recently raised $34 million for Elevest, yeah. which is your digital investing platform for women. Yep. So congratulations Thank on that. You. you know, we often hear women face a far more difficult time getting investors for their companies. And mm-hmm. I think you alluded to that earlier. Has that ever been your experience? It's the, I've certainly got some stories. And, and look, I understand the initial perspective of does the world need Elevest, a digital investment platform for women? Because as I mentioned to you, as you and I were walking in here a few years ago, people said, hey, Sally, you should start an you know an investing platform for women. I said, that is so stupid. Like what? A stupid idea. You're so sexist. Women don't need their own things. You're a jerk. And I became convinced over time when the research told me that women keep more of their money in cash than men do. It costs the listeners to this podcast hundreds of thousands, some of them millions of dollars over the course of their lives because they're earning nothing in cash, whereas the gentlemen are earning more by being invested. And all of my decades on Wall Street, love Wall Street, it's for men by men. And the symbols and the messages to women, including the bull symbol, says it's for men. And so we did a lot of deep research with women on what it is that's keeping them from investing and and found out it's not a lot of the myths, like, oh, women are too risk averse. It's that a lot of the product was beat the market outperform as opposed to reach a goal. Anyway, to answer your question, I get a lot of that when I go out to raise money, even though, you know, you're sort of like, hey, I ran Smith Barney, I ran Merrill, I was CFO of a big bank. Fund me. You do still more than you think get, but women are a niche market. Dude, they're half the population. They control $5 trillion of investable assets. We're going to inherit 70% of the $40 trillion in wealth transfer. Like, this is not a niche market, but that view is still there. The funniest thing that happened to me, though, the most infuriating in this last round, I was meeting with a group of all-men venture capitalists, and the head guy kept mansplaining to me about social media. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I've got more than two million followers, but thank you for that. And digital acquisition. And I'm like, all right, you know, we're running it sort of half the industry cost of acquisition, but thanks for that. And then it was finally when I said, and we're, we're thinking about, you know, hiring some financial advisors. And he began to lecture me on I didn't know what I was doing. Financial advisors are difficult people. They would change the complexion of the business and how different it was to manage them than to manage the digital platform. And I'm sitting there saying, I ran Smith, Barney, and Merrill. Did you not read my bio? Did you not listen when I introduced myself? Did you not listen when your partner introduced me? Did you not go, like, what? And, you know, of course, the thought at the time was, do I storm out of the room or do I stay and try not to embarrass him? So I stayed and try not to embarrass him. It's good of you. Yeah, I know. Very good of you. So what advice would you give women who want to start their own business? Do it. First of all, you know, almost everybody says to me, do you love being an entrepreneur? And the answer is no. It is so hard. And, and you know, I say I've, you know, it's harder than running Merrill Lynch. And I'm the only person on the planet who can say that because you don't have a lot of money. You're trying to create 
something from dirt. You can't make a lot of mistakes or you're out. And you're asking people to come believe in your dream. And it's a non-profitable dream that might not work. And so it's very tension and anxiety inducing. Now, that being said, if you have an idea that's burning within you and you believe you believe in yourself or even if you kind of believe in yourself do it do it because the other side of it is you are fully alive that every day i bring to work everything i've got there's never a day of you know i'm just going to ride today out and sort of relax and return some emails you know it's fully alive fully engaged and so from that perspective it's sort of awesome what advice do you have for women who want to learn more about money and investing but don't know where to start. There's so many articles, some of them in the Wall Street Journal, about investing mistakes people make. And they're all about falling in love with the winners and over-trading and panicking in down markets. And those articles all need to be retitled Investing Mistakes Men Make because the mistake women make is they don't invest as much. And the other mistake they make, which is captured a bit in your question, is they believe what society has told us, which is in addition that we're too risk averse to invest and we need, you know, too much time, da, 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 we really buy into what we're told that we need more financial education to invest. And so we need to learn more. I've got to buy the book. It's true. We do need more financial education. But guess who else does? The guys. And they invest anyway. And so because we women love to get our A's, everybody who's listening knows either if you're a woman, you loved your A's at work, at school. If you have a daughter, she freaks out when she gets a B plus, right? So we buy the books and we say we're going to read them and we say we're going to get financially educated. And then do you know what's more interesting than that? Everything. Everything. Like doing the long laundry is more interesting than reading the book on financial education. And so we put it off. And that's part of what keeps us from earning more money. Put another way, when I was running Smith Barney, our biggest product was the managed account. 84% of our clients did not know what it was. Neither gender, even though we sent them big prospectuses, okay, or prospecti or whatever, whatever the plural of prospectuses. The men and the women would not ask. The men, we love to joke because men don't ask for directions. The women, because women don't like to bother. The men would buy it and the women wouldn't. Who's better off, right? Who's who's sort of dumb? Well, the men were better off because at least they were investing. And so what I would say is, first of all, at Alavest, we've got plenty of resources there for what you should know before you begin to invest, the steps you should take before you begin to invest. And, and other sites have it as well. Certainly do some of that. You don't have to get a PhD in investing. But just do it and then invest a bit out of every paycheck because the other mistake we tend to make, the cognitive mistake we make, is we tend to think of investing as one and done. What if I put the money in and the market crashes? Okay, but what if you put a bit of every paycheck in? Then if the market crashes, you're buying, you buy high and you buy low, you buy low, you buy low, and that can even it out for you. What's the best investment you ever made? My home. <laughs> because so it's when I was at Citigroup. First of all, I know I'm supposed to answer like my kids' education or something like that. So pretend like I did that. <laughs> or the best investment sure. was investing in my marrying my husband. All that stuff. But but the best probably financial plus emotional investment I ever made was my home. At City, we had a handshake agreement 
that we would not sell our stock as a senior leadership team. So I was running Smith Barney there. And I got the permission to sell my stock in order to buy my home. And Citigroup stock, I think it peaked like at 52. It went below one. Now, there are many people who are like, oh, yes, but it's back in the 60s or the 70s now. Uh, 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 uh. I did a 10 for one reverse split. It's it's six or seven. <laughs> and so happily, I took that money, put it in a home that has given us so much joy over the past decade plus and has actually appreciated in value. So my home. Do you think a woman will ever be the wealthiest person in the world? Depends on the time frame. Sure. Why not? Hey, did you see, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, did you see the research that said that today in this country, more people believe that we will see time travel in our lifetimes than believe we will have an equal number of female and male CEOs in the Fortune 500? (laughs) You know, it's hard to argue, right? Right. Time now for your secrets. I'm Sally Krawcheck, CEO and co-founder of Elevest. And my money secret is I love to buy and sell my clothes on The Real Real. I haven't done that. What? <laughs> no, it's amazing. Every time I wear it, I also sell my clothes on it. And so there's sort of a constant, you know, circle of these clothes in and out of my closet. Designer clothes for cheap, cheap, cheap. Be sure to check back for future episodes featuring shark investor Barbara Corcoran from ABC's Shark Tank, Charles Schwab's Lizanne Saunders, and more. Head to WSJ.com slash podcast and be sure to subscribe on TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. Coming soon from the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.